Hey all, welcome to the Next Iteration Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Hadara, my microelectronics professor. He's the first prof we've ever had on the podcast, so hopefully he'll give all the students listening a cool perspective on teaching and academia. Listen to today's episode to hear about his research interests in electronics, how he went from Stanford University to McMaster, the power of community, Moore's Law, quantum computing, and more. You are now listening to the Next Iteration Podcast with your hosts Fuad and Damien. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you for coming on, and, and a, it's a you. pleasure Thank to see you. Thank you very much for having me. Of course. Thank you, Dr. Hidara, for your time today. So, like uh, Fouad mentioned, you are the very first uh, professor that we've had on the podcast. So you're representing that side of academia, I'm right? Extremely privileged. <laughs> We're the privileged <laughs> ones. So um, I myself have not had the privilege of having you, but um, I've talked. I have a ton of engineering friends, and even through the conversation I had with Fouad, I've heard very good things about you. And you know, you're very allied with the students. And you know, on behalf of all your engineering students, thank you for <laughs> everything you've done. Um, Fouad mentioned the inspiration to have you on was actually that you devoted a little extra time to chatting with the students. Did I have that right? Yeah, at the yeah. Profs aren't just there to uh, to fail us, uh, from what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> what has uh, so we'll kind of start, I guess, where you're at now, and we'll work a little bit backwards to get your early education. But how has uh, how's teaching and McMaster been treating you so far? So teaching has its ups and downs, uh, like most anything in life. Um, I I love teaching. I get my energy from teaching. Um, I don't, I'm not very good at the administrative side that goes with it. So this is a continuous, (laughs) a continuous struggle. And uh, in the, uh, you know, in in the times when I have uh, not, not done so well by my students, it's, it's been because of that. And, and I, I, uh, I'm always I'm always very regretful when that happens because I think it gets in the way of of the meaningful part of the job. Um, but yeah, I've you know I've had days uh, when we when we taught in person. I've had days when I was you know literally depressed and I walk into class and I walk back out and it's a completely different feeling. You know, I'm, I, oh. it's, it's something that, like I said, it just yeah, this is, it gives me energy. So um, so I I that. I, I love teaching. Um, the The struggle uh, is to organize things enough and to have things. You know, many students. The, the reality is, many students um, need f- for some courses, not for every course, but for some courses, they basically need a checkbox. You know, and and that's mm-hmm. that's just that's real life. Not every student is going to be deeply interested in every course. Not every student is going to be as engaged by every single course. Mm-hmm. And everyone has to make decisions. Everyone has to make trade-offs and compromises and real-life decisions. And I always tell people, if it, it's it's the decision that is made consciously that is a good decision. It's, yeah. it's decisions that you don't make consciously, the ones that happen because you went on cruise control for a few months and then you wake up and you realize that you're going to miss an opportunity that you really, really wanted. Those are mm-hmm. bad decisions. But if you make a conscious decision to 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 make a certain compromise, uh, then that's a good decision. And mm-hmm. and so for many students, 
the role of the professor is not the, to provide information or to provide discussion or to be engaging. It is to provide a structure for the course to get through. Um, and so my constant struggle since I came to McMaster has been to try and get you know, each course that I take on to get it to that stage where the structure is there and you kind of switch it on and, and it goes. And then I, can, then I can enjoy the part that I really enjoy, <laughs> which, is, which is the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that you love the conversation because that's all we're going to be doing today. So <laughs> it works in perfectly. And I think we, Damon and I both really resonate with what you said about, you know, the decision that is made consciously is the decision that's a good decision. Because one thing that we're huge advocates of is being intentional about things and, you know, starting with the right intentions and starting with uh, like making every decision with the right intention is very, very important. And so, yeah, very much appreciate that you, you kind of mentioned that. So on that note of decision-making, did you always know you wanted to become a professor and how did you kind of decide on that route? You mentioned that you love teaching, but there's a lot of different forms of teaching. So can you walk us through maybe um, your undergrad, your graduate school, and then how you eventually decided to become a professor? Yeah. I mean, the short answer is I've always wanted, I've always known that what I want to do is to be a university professor. Uh, oh, okay. uh, wow. since for as long as I can remember, that's been the career goal. Awesome. Um, so, and I live the dream. Hmm? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even as a student, that's the part I enjoyed. I really enjoyed uh, engaging with the material, you know, asking asking the what-if question and, uh, and talking about it with others, uh, whether they were my classmates or whether they were my instructors. Um, it really, you know, it was all the same as long as I could, as I could engage in that conversation. And so I understood that from a very early point, I really understood that that's, that's where my passion is. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned going to the library. You know, I was an undergrad in Newfoundland, uh, Memorial University of Newfoundland. And uh, at Memorial, we, have a, we had a very small class. The entire engineering class was 150 students. <laughs> uh, and, about, and so the, uh, you know, my electrical engineering class was 50 students. And uh, yeah, and the senior class wow. Yeah, the senior class had a homeroom. We had we had our own room with our everybody had uh, uh, his or her own desk, and we had you know we got we had a coffee machine in the back <laughs> and a couch for people that wanted to nap in the middle of the night for for the old nighters. <laughs> and we were we were hanging out uh, a number of us for some project. I can't remember what project it was, but some deadline. You know, one of those things that you everybody's staying up for, and it was. 10 o'clock at night and in walks one of our professors and he just walked in just to chat and just to see how we're doing and uh, you know kind of and he spent a few minutes with us and we asked him a couple of questions and, and then he walked out and and that that one incident had such a huge impact on me um, I decided I would do that <laughs> with my students amazing so that became you know, that became the night, my ritual for the night before a test, whether a midterm or a final exam, is go to Thode, find, find students who are busy uh, <laughs> midnight oil. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Burning more than midnight oil. Burning oh, our yeah. brain cells out. Kind <laughs> of yeah. sharing the stress. <laughs> That's so interesting, though, how these, you know, it seems like just such a, a small moment. Like it's just this one chance encounter with the prof, but it has such a re resounding impact on you. 
yeah. And it's also it's I don't know why, but it's kind of weird to think that profs were once students at a, at a time as well. It's like in my head, you've always <laughs> just been like a professor. Yeah. Um, but so when you started off in your academic journey, you know, you you started out in engineering. Did you feel like you made the like the right choice just off the bat? Were there any doubts at all? About academia or about engineering? About your about engineering. So choosing that path, no, you knew you wanted to be a, prof- yes, a professor, but did no. you know it wanted to be a professor in engineering? Well, I mean, I I did my degree in engineering, so I couldn't be a professor in engineering. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was I've 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 had I've never had a doubt about academia. Mm-hmm. Um, in, engineering is a different story. There have been many times when I thought, uh, you know, maybe maybe that wasn't the best choice. Who knows? So yeah, I mean, again, that's a, that's a long, long story. But uh, we'd love to hear it. We have an hour. Because <laughs> <laughs> the thing, like a lot of us face that issue too, right? Like we, I mean, we're still very young, and like now it feels like there's more opportunities to do things than ever before. Like yeah. with the advent of the internet, we're constantly being introduced to potential career paths. Mm-hmm. It's hard to it's hard to make that choice sometimes, you know, and we're constantly riddled with doubt. Yeah. I, I, you know, I fell into engineering, uh, so there, there didn't seem to be uh, many other options that were viable uh, at the time that I was taking an undergraduate degree, uh, and a lot of it had to do with the with the social context and 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 uh, and the opportunities that I was aware of. So, so the first thing I I would tell I would say to people, and this is you know certainly what I try to communicate to my own to my own uh, children is is to look around mm-hmm. uh, you need to be aware of what's out there because um, again it's these accidental decisions that get you mm-hmm. um, but the second thing is uh, is don't don't waste your time on regrets you know it's uh, where you are is where you are and you and you, you you know you only have control over your future you, you have no control over the past. So what's done is done. Mm-hmm. Um, and you made the decision, presumably you made the decision in the best way that you could at that time with the information you had, with the resources you had, and that's it, you move on. Uh, but then there is a follow-on from that, which is if you, you know, it is, it is almost never too late to change. Right. So if you were, I had a student um, a long time ago, I had a student who uh, had a hard time in first year engineering. Mm-hmm. Continued uh, because he felt that he has, you know, he has no choice but to continue. Second year engineering, he failed out. Mm-hmm. Had to leave the university. Uh, went away for a year, did other courses elsewhere, and then came back and got reinstated and tried engineering again. Uh, and failed out again, you know. Mm-hmm. And then finally decided, okay, you know, I will, I will go into something that I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. He went into, and he went into marketing mm-hmm. and he is a phenomenal success. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, you know, it would have been nicer if he had made that decision after first year or after second year, instead of, instead of spending three or four years uh, mm-hmm. trying to force something that's not going to happen. And it's, you know, it's kind of, it's the, the, the fallacy of, of good money after bad, right? You've invested so much into this. So 
you can it's a waste you would be wasting the two years that you spent in engineering if you don't finish your degree no it's it's not a waste you end up wasting four years instead of two years yeah but even then it still isn't too late it was the right decision in my opinion that was the right decision so if you find that that after experiencing something that you're not your heart is not in it your your passion is not in it don't don't worry about what's happened worry about what's coming Mm-hmm. Right? So yeah. make a good decision for yourself. And the last thing I will say about this, right, is so so be aware. You know, look around, be aware. Uh, don't regret past decisions, but also don't be afraid to change. And the last thing I will say about this is talk to people. Mm-hmm. Having having trusted colleagues, uh, you, you know, you don't want to think you don't want to fall into the trap of, of the blind leading the blind. So you don't want to you don't want your counselors and your advisors to be the people who will always have an opinion, no matter whether no matter how much they know or how little they know. Mm-hmm. But having trusted peers who are reflective, who are thoughtful, is just as important as having trusted mentors who have more experience than you do. Mm-hmm. And you need both. You know, so you need to talk to mentors and you need to talk to peers, but it, you should you should be careful who you choose to talk to. Don't you know? Talk to people who share your values, and talk to people who are thoughtful and reflective. Uh, and, and those are the people that are going to help you figure out what you are interested in and figure out what you are what you are good at and what you what what will make you happy in your life and what will make and what will make you make a contribution and leave a mark on the world. So, so this, you know, really being careful to choose who your advisors are, who your counselors are, whether they are your peers, as I said, or whether they are mentors with more experience. Um, but both, both are very important. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's hard to make that choice from the inside looking out sometimes, right? And you bring up some very good points because that's something I personally struggled with as well. So you mentioned like that sunk cost bias when you've spent so much time doing something that you feel like it would be time wasted if you didn't keep pursuing that thing. And I've definitely struggled with that before, but then also, you know, on the flip side of that, it's when you're faced with making a choice, people spend so much time worrying about making the right choice, but it's really about, and we mentioned this on the podcast before, but it's really about making a choice and then making it the right choice. You know, instead of worrying about if you're going to go the right way, you make it the right way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, thank you so much. Like you're an excellent storyteller, like just carrying us through that. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, well, that point that you just made, I mean, that is, I think that's, like I said, that is a, that is very important. And that's the tricky balance that we, we all have a challenge to get. But, but again, like I said, being reflective and thoughtful is crucial. Uh, because you're right. Sometimes what it is, what what is needed is that you make it the right choice, right? And this is what I meant when I said no regrets. You only have control over the future, not the past. Mm-hmm. But at the exactly. same time, at the same time, you know, the flip side of this is you should not be afraid of making a change. So and and you know, deciding deciding what is the right thing is is um, is difficult. It's not easy. And that's why you need you need thoughtfulness, but you also need outside uh, perspective. Yeah, in some ways, it's easier than ever to make that change. 
uh, because of the access of, to information, in some ways it's harder than ever just because everybody's watching what you're doing now. That's Absolutely. Right. That's right. And I think an important point as well is like mentorship can take so many forms, right? Like mentorship isn't necessarily somebody telling you what to do and it isn't necessarily somebody who's, you know, quote unquote above you in life. Like it, a lot of times mentorship can come from peers. And so that leads me to the question, who are some of the most influential mentors that you had in your life? And how did you got, kind of find them? Because I think that a lot of students struggle with finding good mentors. Like you have to be very selective about who you let influence your decisions and things like that. So how did you find your mentors and who were they? I, I have to say that my, my, my first mentors were my parents. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and I've, I, 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 I've been blessed with having, uh, you know, a, a good relationship with, with uh, both of them and having the benefit of their advice. Um, my uh, PhD advisor is, is someone who left a, a, a big mark on me. And then I did a postdoc with someone also who was, so my supervisor in the postdoc was also someone who was very, very important in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in my community, I've always been active in my community, and I've had uh, I've had a lot of uh, uh, involvement in in activism and so on. And so uh, I've had teachers in different places. You know, I've I've lived in different places in the world, and almost everywhere where I went, again, I was blessed with having a teacher that I could that I could trust, that I could depend on. Um, so so I had. One teacher in, in, in Kuwait in particular had a huge, huge impact on me. Um, and then two people in California had, had a, a, a huge impact on me as well. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a real blessing when you start, you know, when you find that you have a, when the list gets longer and longer, uh, <laughs> that is a real blessing. And, and one, to the, to one of the points that you just made, Fouad, is... Not only would I say that it's not necessarily that a mentor will not tell you, uh, not is it that not not only is it not necessary for a mentor to tell you what to do, uh, it's not really mentorship if they are telling you what to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've I've had my fair share of people who knew exactly what I should do, <laughs> uh, and that's that's not usually good advice. Definitely, yeah, that's a very good point. Like a mentor is there to like help you find out what you want to do, not make decisions on your behalf, right? right? Because if it's, it's not a decision you made, it's not going to be the right decision for you. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Um, yeah. Continuing on that vein, you mentioned a little bit about, um, you know, your postdoc and, and your PhD. Um, I know a lot of students are kind of intimidated by the idea of a PhD. And honestly, I don't blame them. It seems like a huge commitment. Um, it seems like a very rough time. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your graduate studies and, and sort of like what your research interests uh, were at the time. So uh, my research interests were from, a, again, from maybe second year in undergrad, when I first started studying electronics, I realized that my interest was not just in the circuits, but in the devices and the materials that, that are, uh, you know, kind of the lower level, the fundamental level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tried to get some of that exposure. Uh, I was a co-op student and I specifically chose to go and, and, and work uh, at a company, Bell Northern Research, which doesn't exist anymore, but at that time it was a big, big research outfit in uh, uh, in Ottawa, and I I, uh, I worked there and I learned a lot. I worked in the advanced technology lab, and I started to get more and more exposed to 
what is it that I would need to study if I want to work in that in that area in that field. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to graduate school, um, and again, and, and you know that was another turning point in my life. And I, I was um, uh, blessed. I got. I was. I was uh, admitted to a, a fantastic school um, that I, I really enjoyed. Uh, and I, I went, so I went to Stanford in California, and um, I, the uh, the master's degree there is course based, so you don't have a research supervisor, and you don't have anyone uh, to talk about, uh, you know, your career with to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but every student is assigned a, a an academic advisor, and typically the job of the academic advisor is just to meet with you early on and sign off on your course list, and that's it. And um, and I had an academic advisor who was a, a very prominent researcher in his field at the time, and a very busy guy, massive research group, huge research grants, and and so I I fully expected that I was just going to go meet with him for five minutes, um, get him to sign off on my course list, and and I'm done, right? Mm-hmm. And I walked in and he was sitting at his computer working on something and he said, please give me a minute. So I sat down and waited. And then he finished what he was doing. He turned around. He leaned back in his chair and, you know, kind of put his hands on his, on his stomach. And then he said, and then he said, tell me about yourself. And it was, you know, just completely open-ended. And I started talking and you can see I'm a very verbose kind of guy. So <laughs> I started talking and, you know, 10, 15 minutes later, I had told him my life story and I had told him what I was interested in and so on. And he said, well, if you want to work on semiconductors, you have to take courses in material science. You can't just take all of the courses in ECE. Mm-hmm. So go and take this course with this professor. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really interesting because that, that professor that he talked about, that became my PhD advisor. Nice. Ironically. Okay. Uh, or one of the ironic things is, and I, you know, I'm keeping all the names out of it for, for obvious reasons, as, as, as you'll see. But I found out later that those two people didn't get along at all. Oh, no way. They didn't get along at all. Wow. Uh, and yet, he, this guy was, and he was recognizing not just that I need to study this material, but he was recognizing the excellence and and proficiency of his colleague mm-hmm. whom he was recommending to me all personal considerations aside mm-hmm. you know and uh and again like i said that was a huge turning point in my life because i went and studied with this with this uh professor who is he you know he was probably one of the best professors at Stanford at the time. He's a phenomenally talented teacher, extremely committed to his students. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, as soon as I finished that course, I went to the timetable and started looking what other courses does he teach so that I can take them. And after I took a second course with him, then we talked about research and then I joined his research group. Great. So, so, you know, these are the kinds of connections that, uh, that, that, lead you you know to your own uh, to your own path and that's that's what led me into this research area um and it's, it's been a it's been a wonderful ride you know that's amazing so, such a heartwarming story sorry go yeah. ahead go ahead 
And if he had like a little more hubris too, like if he didn't recognize the talent of his fellow professor there, like your life would be completely different too now, Dr. Hadara. So yeah. it's just really interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had a question about one of the experiences that you had at Stanford. So for context, this was before I was even born. And by extension, Fouad was yet to be born as well. But <laughs> <laughs> you had you had a, a, a stint, I guess, a little period of time when you were part of the, a member of the steering committee of what matters and why. Yes. I was just like I was just looking into it a bit and I found it really interesting that there was a body, like a student body that existed like that. So how how what was your experience? in what matters to me and why, and why was that important? Why is it important that Stanford had that? First, I'd maybe first, explain it first, just because uh, I don't know if all the students know what it is. No, I'll, I'll explain what it is, but okay. I just, at some point you're gonna have to tell me how you came across that because I would, <laughs> that was something that was incredibly obscure and it was certainly before the days of the internet. So <laughs> there was an internet, but it was, you know, that was the internet that Al Gore invented. You know? <laughs> yeah, back when it was very noisy, you make the, anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this, this was back in the days when, uh, when Mosaic was, uh, was, uh, was the only web browser around instead of being a miserable piece of software. That <laughs> oh, man. But it's anyway. a lovely, lovely relationship with Mosaic for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, what, what matters to me and why was basically just a student club. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't any official part of the university or anything like that. It was just a student club. It was a group of students that got together and they said, we would like to get together on a regular basis. I think we met weekly. I can't, I can't remember for sure, but mm-hmm. we met regularly. Uh, lunchtime meeting, invite one speaker who will speak on the subject of what matters to me and why. Mm. And uh, we specifically told the speakers that we weren't interested in a life story. We are not interested in, in, in a narrative of what happened. We are interested in what the title says, what matters to me and why. So we want you to tell us about, about your values. Tell us about what moves you. Tell us about your passion, your energy. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and we, we, you know, we drew from the local community. So faculty members, uh, administrators, volunteers, um, and, and you know, the, the talent pool uh, in, in Palo Alto is, is huge. So you, you have a very wide, wide uh, uh, group to pull from. And, uh, and these, were, these were very fun, uh, very fun meetings um, to sit down there and, and to sit down and listen to someone who's who's and tends to they tend they all tend to be extremely interesting people, um, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm not you know uh, we weren't hung up on any kind of measure of of success material or otherwise we're just talking about about like I said people being interesting people uh, and you listen to them reflect on what matters to them and and why. That's beautiful, and I mean like everybody becomes kind of interesting when they start talking about something they're passionate about, right? And just as a side note, that sounds like a perfect topic for a podcast. Like, I, I don't know if that, like, I, I feel like somebody's probably doing that, but. You guys should yeah. have recorded those episodes. <laughs> you would have had a podcast before it was cool. <laughs> oh, that man. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, cool. So, yeah. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, I guess the natural follow-up question to that, <laughs> Dr. Hadar, you, you must have been expecting this. What matters to you and why? <laughs> <laughs> I've, been, I've been 
You know, I'm, I'm kind of dragging this out because I'm thinking about <laughs> what I'm going to say. It, oh, it's not coming. Uh, it's, um, I'll, I'll tell you, um, uh, it's, it's two, I'll tell you in two words. It's faith and community. Mm. Um, and uh, so for, for me, uh, for me, my faith is, is something that is, uh, that is in every every aspect, every dimension of my life, mm-hmm. and it's not something that I, you know, it's not it's not what you, it's not about preaching to other people or imposing on other people. It's actually quite the opposite. But it's about appreciating the shared values because I think if someone, if you really understand your faith, then you must understand the fundamental values that are almost global, universal human values that are not limited to any one group of, of people or any one community or any one race or any one religion or any, it's, it's just, it's shared values, you know? And if you can understand those fundamental values, then I would argue that you understand your faith. And if you don't understand those values, then you don't understand your faith. Because I think, you know, what people, people sometimes, sometimes, not all, no, but sometimes people focus on faith as something that is spiritual individual supernatural mm-hmm. whereas i would argue that the bigger dimension of faith is how it allows you to be part of the human family mm-hmm. and then that means how to be part of a family with with people who are different from you they believe different things they practice different things they they have different ambitions they have different goals etc but somewhere in that diversity, there are some shared values that can anchor our being together. And if you mm-hmm. understand those values, then you can be valuable to everyone around you. And if you don't understand those values, then you will not be a positive influence in uh, in, in the life of those that are around. And that, come, that brings the second part, which is community. Uh, each of us, again, whether we choose it or not, we are part of multiple communities. We don't. We don't have a choice about being part of a community. Mm-hmm. What we have a choice about is what is our contribution to that community. Are are we going to be a burden, uh, or are we going to be observers on on the on the side, or are we actually going to have an, a positive impact in the life of people around us? And I I think it is. It is I take it as a, a measure of one's faith that they want to be a positive influence in the lives of people around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the two things that matter to me. And 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 I, you know and the why I think kind of is part and parcel of what I just said, which is this is what makes this is what makes uh, human existence constructive and and collaborative and positive um and without it then we just become you know isolated pockets uh mm-hmm. like you know life kind of becomes very very dry and uh, um, it becomes it becomes a building so so that's you know that is what matters to me and why that's a beautiful answer I was going to say, yeah, thank you for sharing that. And so we actually did an episode recently on longevity. So I just wanted to, I don't don't know if you know this, but um, by virtue of you being part of that faith-based community, you're actually going to be living statistically longer by those than those who don't. Up to five years longer too. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. 
um, yeah and i just think it's so beautiful though just the first of all how having that faith and having community kind of go hand in hand in that too you know like we're climbing up on like eight billion people in the world there can be somebody on the other side of this planet you've never met before in your life but just because you know you share that same faith you you know you feel so close to them like it's almost this intangible thing and even more than being this roadmap or this this blueprint for morals to live by you know it's it's an excuse to you know love your fellow human being i guess on this planet so it's it's such a powerful thing for sure i actually have a follow up question kind of on that note um as you know you know we're we're going through un- unprecedented times and so community uh and especially faith based communities have had to adapt uh, very much you know to these these times so how are you bringing community into your life and faith into your life um during this pandemic cuz i i for one have been have been struggling a lot to kind of find community because you know it's so hard to see people you know zoom calls aren't quite doing it for me personally i'm a huge extrovert i love talking and i can tell that you love talking too um so how have you been finding community and, and trying to maintain that through through this pandemic uh so there's actually a number of things but um, again my so my argument is that uh we are, like i said we are part of multiple communities and this is not something you get to choose all you get to choose is how to affect that community what is going to be your role in your community so uh you know my electrical engineering department that's a community my classes that is another community you know my my faith based community is is another community my family is a, is a community in and of itself right and and my neighborhood is a community so in each of these communities there are different roles that one that one can play uh, i've embraced zoo <laughs> you know and uh, I've I have done so much on Zoom in the last year. It's really been incredible, um, and it's been one of the things that has filled me with gratitude. Uh, you know, this is not the first global pandemic in the history of the world, but the 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 million or so people that died in the Spanish flu didn't have the internet or Zoom or you know or other tools to stay connected. Um, so, so yes, we're you know we're being our strength, our resilience is being tested, but but look at the resources we have our, at our disposal that we can that we can actually use in this uh, in facing this challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know many families that have actually come closer, very paradoxical, but they've come closer together as a result of this because now they actually make it a point to be on Zoom once a week or twice a week or whatever. When in fact, before, beforehand, it was the, the reliance was on physical meeting, which may happen you know, once a month or once every couple of months. Yeah. Um, so it's, all, it's not just about the nature of the challenge, it's really about how you respond to that challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's been one thing for me. The second thing is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in a stage in my life where I'm, I, I, uh, I tend to take a back seat until opportunities present themselves. I'm not, I'm not going out there looking for opportunities the way I might have uh, 10, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. But opportunities come. You know, mm-hmm. people, 
people come, whether it's a student who is asking for advice or a former student who wants a reference or someone in the community who's, go, who's going through some very difficult time and they just need someone to talk to mm-hmm. or a community organization that needs uh, someone to write a piece or to, or to, give, uh, or to give an interview or to meet with someone. Or, and so again, I, and I see that as a huge, huge uh, blessing. Um, one of one of my uh, teachers, I was asking for advice on something at a very difficult time in my life. Uh, I asked him for advice about something, and he said, uh, uh, "He said you should see every every contribution that you make. You should see it as a gift from God for which you are grateful." So the fact that you are able to do something, that's not actually your doing. That is a gift that was given to you. Mm-hmm. So every time that somebody calls me and says, okay, we need you to do X, you know, whether that X is, is a, like I said, it's a talk or an interview or a piece of just an article to write or, 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 or just to sit back and listen. You know, I think that that's sometimes very undervalued, but I, I, it's one of the things I, I truly love to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that's done, I look at it and I, I say that, you know, that was a gift from God for which I'm very grateful. Um, so, but again, the key to it, in my opinion, the key is to realize, don't, don't go and ask, where is my community? You are part of a community in every sphere that you move, in every circle that you move, you are part of a community. So the question isn't, do you have a community? The question is, what are you contributing to that community? What is your role? Mm-hmm. I love how you flipped that question because I think gratitude is so important and it's something that Damon and I have underscored the importance of in this podcast, like a number of times and just changing that, that it's a very small perspective change, you know, just flipping that sentence around and not saying it's almost like, I don't, I don't know if you remember um, JFK's famous speech, ask not what you can do for your country or ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country uh, brings that to mind. But yeah, I, I didn't think of like framing it like that. Like, yes, I'm still a part of these communities and rather like, how do I, instead of asking like, how do I get more involved with them? It's how can I affect these communities in a positive way? And that's a very beautiful way of looking at it. Um, on that note, the podcast too, you know, <laughs> hopefully. hopefully, hopefully we're trying to create a community, um, you know, in yes, our yeah. small way. Um, on that note, I want to, you know, we're getting, we're getting very esoteric and I want to, I want to center the conversation a little bit more around uh, some, some practical tips for students. How do you succeed in online school? Uh, what works, what doesn't work. And you talked a little bit about this in, in a couple of those uh, info nights that we did. Uh, what works and what doesn't work because, you know, we're, we and David are both struggling and we, we'd love some advice. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, my, my, uh, my son had an opportunity to work remotely before, way, you know, a couple of years ago. So nothing to do with the pandemic. He just had this, this great opportunity and he took it. So he was living in South America for four, we- four weeks and working in his company here in Toronto. Um, and so he, he, you know, he explored a number of things and, and, and I, I, uh, I learned these things from him, uh, from his experience. Um, w- one of the things that you lose in the online environment is structure. And for some people, that's great. You're going to thrive. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, for some people, but that's not the majority of people. The majority of us need structure. And so what you need to do is you need to impose on yourself a structure. And so he shared, you know, some, some very simple habits. You wake up in the morning, get dressed like you're going to go to work. 
if you can actually if you have the energy i i don't have the energy to take that step i never do but but if you do it's a great thing to do go out the door walk around the block for 10 minutes as if that's oh, your commute to work right and then you come back now you've you've gone to you've come to work or you've come to school mm-hmm. if you're a student even if you're you know even if everything is asynchronous make a schedule for yourself as if this is class time mm-hmm. Set a study schedule for yourself that is by, you know, that is concrete, that is by course. This, you know, Thursday, 7 to 10, that's my electronics course. I'm going to study that course. And it's kind of, you know, it's, you know, come hell or high water type of thing. You know, that's that's my time for this subject, not for any other subject. doesn't matter what other deadlines are coming up. This is for this subject. Mm-hmm. And these hours here are for this subject. And these are... Impose on yourself the structure that works for you, but but you have to have a structure. So mm-hmm. impose on yourself the structure that works for you and stick to it. And that is a very important part of of uh, of adapting to the online life. The second thing is take very active and conscious steps to break the isolation. So I've been advising my second year students, all of them. I've been advising them to please create study groups, you know, have, have these study groups and make them real study groups. You know, uh, collaboration is a good thing. It is not a bad thing. It is not a dishonest thing. You know, at the end of the day, you're going to have to produce your own work. That has to be very clear. You have to produce your own work at the end. What you submit has to be your own work. But everything leading up to that point can be done with others. You can share the research, you can share the thinking, you can share the troubleshooting, and you can share the, you know, the struggle. You can, you can sit and vent together. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. There's a lot of We that. definitely do that. I, I don't <laughs> think anyone has a problem with sharing the struggle. <laughs> and then the last thing is uh, friendships. You know, um, there are a few, a few of my friends and I, we get together on a regular basis and we do Zoom tea, you know, so... <laughs> nice. You know, each of us brings a cup of tea and maybe... Uh, uh, something, a snack to, to eat, and we sit there for an hour, an hour and a half and check, mm-hmm. you know? And that's, again, it's a regular thing. You have to build it in. If you don't build it in, it's not gonna happen. Mm-hmm. So you have to build it in. Um, when we first uh, when we first started, when this whole thing started, our uh, the department uh, administrator and, and uh, chair, they decided that we were going to have a weekly get together for the department. Uh, and they did over uh, over Microsoft Teams. And you know that had a, I think that had a big impact on all of us. Is again, it, it sent the message not by lip service, but by actually doing it. Mm-hmm. You're not in this alone. We're we're all in this together. And people people who usually didn't show up to formal department meetings started showing up to these get-togethers. You know, that's that's amazing. Yeah, yeah I have found that. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say like they definitely miss started missing each other. Oh, yeah, I was going to pivot the topic, but I jump in quick. Yeah, I was just going to reiterate that. Yeah, like one thing that I found and, and kind of on the note of, of families getting closer is that Zoom, while it's not the same as an in-person connection, obviously, and, and no one's pretending that it is, has kind of reduced the bar of entry in order to have a conversation with somebody. Like it was so easy for you to click on a link and hop on this conversation. Whereas if we were like set on doing this in McMaster's recording room, we would have to, you know, set aside a time. You'd have to walk across campus. And and there's so much more of like a barrier to entry there. Whereas like now, like I can chat with like eight people in eight different countries, like in within like, 
you know, four hours and have 30 minute conversations with each of them, which is amazing. So, yeah, it's so funny too how like our brains are so fickle. Like in some ways, it's like conspiring against us. And we have to, like, with the whole thing about routines, right? Like, if I have to wake up at 7 a.m. to walk around the block just to, you know, be primed for my 8 a.m. class, like, why is my body making it so hard for me? It could be so easy just to wake up, down my coffee, and be ready for the day. I wish it were that easy. Yeah. Um, so I actually was curious. So you you do a lot of work with semiconductors, Dr. Dara, and I just, oh man. So I tried to give myself a little masterclass in semiconductors and my feeble brain was like struggling to try and uh, <laughs> reconcile some of the concepts. But so I used to lead that question. I just want to ask you, is Moore's law dead? Uh, nope. <laughs> so Moore's Law, you know, I, I have always enjoyed talking about Moore's Law. Yeah. Because it is the, it is the, long, the longest lasting and most impactful self-fulfilling prophecy in the history of humanity. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is, uh, the, Moore's Law is not a, is not a natural law. It is, it's an observation that was made in, in 1973. <laughs> That's how far back it goes. And once it became, once it was made, once the observation was made, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy because you're basically thinking that your competitors are going to stick to the space. And if you don't, you're going to fall behind. So now everybody has to stick to it. Mm-hmm. So no, I don't think it's dead. And I don't think, I think it's it's got a ways to go yet. Um, uh, uh, people, people just have the the imagination and creativity and brilliance to to keep circumventing the limits that we think we're gonna we're gonna hit. Um, and I see that continuing for at least another decade. Um, mm-hmm. But then, uh, but the other thing again, like this again, people you know, smart people don't get stuck in one paradigm. So mm-hmm. people have been talking about. Uh, for a, several years now is okay we're going to have more of more but we should also have more than more mm-hmm. so there is more of there's more than more. more than more has become about diversifying or integration how do I put multiple different functionalities in the same box so how do I put together the electronics with the photonics with the bio with the, with the sensors with the you know everything so with the RF, with the microwave, and so on. So with the low power, the the, the the high performance, how do you integrate the different modules or the different design paradigms or the different design functionalities uh, mm-hmm. together in, 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 in one product? Um, and, and, and that is kind of in the spirit of Moore's law. So it's not, it's not Moore is about scaling dimensions and this is about increasing functionality in a different way because the, the key about scaling dimensions is if you can pack more devices in the same area well obviously more devices can do more work right if you have if you have uh, if you have a million memory cells they can do a lot more you can do a lot more with that than you than you can with a thousand memory cells mm-hmm. so the scaling that has been the way in which the complexity of computers and memory chips and logic uh, and communication uh, electronics have increased over the last 40 years. 
but 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 now okay let's think about how do we how do we also expand the capacity but not by shrinking the size and increasing the number of units but rather by increasing the different types of units that are all in the same system mm-hmm. um, and and so both of these directions are are operating in in today's research in semiconductors so it's still i mean like within doing that right like it still requires like a tremendous amount of capital like invested into that so i mean we're seeing the number of companies that are working on even just developing the next generation of chips just rapidly shrinking which kind of lends itself to the notion that we are kind of starting to taper off like up towards like the upper end of Moore's law there and in so i mean like what we have like three companies now like intel um nvidia and um, amd amd um what do you think like what so you, you mentioned like there are these like new technologies i saw that and now that the visible spectrum of light has become too big to even uh, uh to to uh, implement like lithography to help carve these chips right and we, we have to go into uv light now and like first of all that just blows my mind that we're even capable of doing something like that at such tiny scales but what are some promising successors then that we can look towards in the future? Yeah, so so to that question, I honestly tell you, I have no idea. But but mm-hmm. uh, but let me talk about something related. Um, so the consolidation that you're talking about is is true. There is there is yes, the number of companies and so on is shrinking, but that is in manufacturing, mm-hmm. not in just not in design. Right. So what people have done right. is they have separated, they've turned manufacturing into a service. Mm-hmm. And that has opened the door for a lot of different companies, actually small outfits that can come up with, with very interesting designs, very, very uh, ingenious designs, um, and, and then get them fabricated elsewhere. Right. So, so by separating the manufacturing from the design, uh, people have actually opened up this the door for for more and more companies to be involved and and to to a very high degree uh, lower the barrier to entry into the into this industry. Mm-hmm. So in Canada, we don't have a thriving uh, fabrication uh, industry in, in semiconductors. Mm-hmm. We have a huge design sector in semiconductors and communication electronics and biomedical applications, in smart uh, power, in smart uh, systems, uh, all of this. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just have one last follow-up for you. And then like, I'm sorry, Fod, I'll toss it over to you right after that. No, but, no, no. Go ahead. Um, so an area that I've been increasingly interested in um, is quantum computing. So that was, that was my follow-up. So go ahead. Oh, was actually? Oh, nice. Um, I mean, we even saw, I think it was last year, maybe two years ago, IBM de- uh, declared quantum supremacy, which was, I mean, like some of their competitors will, will uh, challenge that claim, but it was just baffling that we've even reached that point right now. And, uh, and like Moore's law wouldn't apply to qubits. Right. So would there be a next generation of that? Like, what's is there going to be like a Moore's law for qubits for like quantum computing? I I don't know. I honestly, you're 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 
you've pushed outside of, <laughs> of my, my knowledge parameters. We've, we've hit my, uh, my boundaries right now, so. Right, Are, is quantum computing an area that you're, uh, you're excited by as well? I, I am excited by it. I know next to nothing. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lay person when it comes to quantum computing. Mm. I have no knowledge about, uh, about it as a, as a scientist, as a practitioner. I just- Right, I, so I read it and this- Sorry. So, does then like the like the foundational principles that you come to learn in electrical um, engineering over time, does that still? Because I'm also a layperson. Like I, I just have no idea. And quantum, if like I was struggling to understand about semiconductors, quantum computing is just beyond me. But uh, do like to what degree then? Like, would you think that the foundational principles that apply to electrical engineering still apply to quantum computing, or is this now like a completely different plane? Um. No, it's not a completely different plane. Uh, but so some of the some of the foundations apply, but but obviously the technology uh, is the, the technology implementation is is different. Uh, mm-hmm. It's different enough that uh, it, it it is a new field. It's something that someone you know. So just just by having gone to just by having an electrical engineering degree doesn't mean that you now understand quantum, but it, does. Right. But it does mean that you have some of the basic tools. And this is why, you know, the foundations are the foundations always. You can go, if you're interested in it, you can go and start learning about it. But, but you have to recognize that it is a different field of knowledge and that you need to learn about it. You can't, you can't just assume that you already know it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Great point. Yeah. So we're coming up at 10 and five. Wait, I have, uh, I have, do you have like maybe five minutes past 10? Cause I have one more follow question and then the last question we, we need to ask. Okay. Awesome. Um, my follow question to that is what developments in microelectronic microelectronics are you most excited about in the coming years? Um, I, I think this whole notion of, of, uh, smart systems, uh, and, uh, and the idea of smart systems is they are systems that can interact with the world. So they can gather information about the world, they can analyze the information, and then they can make decisions based on that information. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And the idea of smart systems is, you know, the door, the, the door becomes wide open. You can do a lot of things. And the question is, what should you do? So the, the ethical implications, the societal implications, the privacy implications, all of these things become, become very important for me. So it's not so much, you're talking about, you're asking me what excites me about what's coming down the road. It's not so much what we can do, it's what we should do. And having mm-hmm. that conversation uh, is, is, is something that I find, um, I'm happy to see more and more people raising those points and raising those questions. I don't know if you guys have seen the documentary, The, the Social Dilemma. Yes. I, I thought that was a phenomenal documentary. And I, you know, and, and I, I loved it precisely because it was by practitioners. Yeah. Know, these are the people that are actually doing the work and they are the people who are raising the questions. It is not something, it's not something that is an outsider's perspective. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what I'm finding most interesting. Um, yeah. 
the second aspect that is related to this is how it will impact education. Uh, and again, I think we've seen that, you know, stuff that used to be in the imagination of, of a few sci-fi writers is now almost practical. But we've also seen that the human response to it uh, is not mechanical. You know, it's not, uh, it's not simply you flip a switch and we all convert to online education. There are aspects to education that are very informal. They cannot be replicated or they are difficult to replicate in an online environment. Uh, but, but that is not to say that there is not a path forward. One of my colleagues has done a lot of, uh, of work on developing labs in virtual reality. So VR mm. labs. Yeah, you can simulate this the lab environment. You can you can simulate the, the the interaction, the social interaction that actually does play a huge part in the learning. Mm -hmm. uh, but 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 my point is that we're going to have to explore that. We we can't just say okay, we're going to move it online. The lectures are going to be recorded. People are going to go you know dial in using Zoom. And, and that's it, whatever you could do in the classroom, you can now do online, sometimes even more efficiently. Yes, you can do it more efficiently, but it doesn't replicate all of the elements that go in the learning process. And so again, so again, it comes down to the same thing. It's not what you can do, it's, it's what you should do. You know? mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's the why and the how rather than the what that is going to be very important in the coming years. That was yeah. a that was a great answer. Sorry, no, go ahead. No, I I just like again like, I want to stay respectful of your time, Dr. Dara, but I just want to say like I love the proactive look at having that conversation. Like again, like a lot of technologists face the they they're so occupied with figuring out whether or not they can do it. Like you said, or instead of really thinking about whether or not they should do it. And you know, this is where like the importance of getting those those uh, people with like those humanities, liberal arts backgrounds into the conversation having those ethical conversations about these things. And um, mm -hmm. one interesting thing I, I read about like a couple months ago was the notion that, that technologists and like mathematicians, people working on these emerging technologies should have some form of like a Hippocratic oath that doctors take for themselves, which I thought was really interesting as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and kind of furthering on that, well, like first off, like the, the whole implications of the, especially the smart systems thing, that's like, literally like how Damien and I met, like discussing those things at Sidewalk <laughs> Labs, which is which is really interesting because, you know, there you have the unique situation where if you're redesigning a city from scratch and you can have a sensor everywhere in every sidewalk, in every, you know, stoplight, in every stop sign, um, you know, what does that mean for citizens? Like, where does the data live? Who has steward of that? Who has stewardship of that data? Um, those are all questions. And, you know, uh, amazingly, amazingly so that, that Torontonians actually like, ask those hard questions and that's one of the reasons that mm -hmm. you know unfortunately sidewalk labs had to pull out of toronto because you know torontonians didn't they weren't satisfied with the with the answers that google was able to provide uh but it's good that people are thinking about that uh, and it's funny that you mentioned the social dilemma actually because we uh next month we have uh bailey richardson who is one of the uh people interviewed on the movie i don't know if you remember oh, uh, but she was one of the first 10 employees at instagram and she's coming on our podcast well, uh, next month okay. yeah so we'll make sure to link you that up so when it comes out if you're interested in that sort of stuff yes um yeah. Um, anyways, so yes, like Damien mentioned, um, and obviously, you know, I, I, I also want to be very respectful of your time. Um, <laughs> we have one final question. 
Um, this is a question we kind of traditionally ask every interviewee um, on the last or at the end of the interview. And the question is, if you could put a message on a billboard that would reach millions, perhaps even billions of people, and this is kind of throwing it back to, you know, what matters to you and why, uh, what message would you put on that billboard and why? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to word it. Uh, I, I know the thought that is in my mind. I just don't know how to put it. No through. worries. Take your time. So, um, I, I, I would say that it is, uh, first, first you have to discover your own anchor. So whether, whether that is you know, something spiritual or whether it is a knowledge, or, but you have to discover your own anchor and then you have to take it outside. So don't, don't so you have to start inward mm. and stay inward. Uh, you have to take it outside. You have to, you have to have, um, one one thing I used to say to 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 to, uh, to young people that I that I uh, uh, interacted with is take it as a measure of your faith, take it as a measure of the quality of your faith that you want to be a positive agent in the lives of others. Mm-hmm. So so that but but that has to come from that has to first come from your own faith. You first you have to anchor yourself inward. And then you have to reflect that in your interaction with others. Mm-hmm. That that is too long to go on a billboard. But if I if I had the billboard, I think I would I would work on the, on the wording. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can put I, a QR code to a you know a blog post that explains it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel like there's like I feel like I've heard a quote that says this beautifully too. But I I just love the intention behind it. Is, I mean, we all need that. Life gets stormy sometimes, and we need something that lighthouse at the end that can, you know, keep us guided along the way for sure. Mm-hmm. But yes, Dr. Dara, thank you so much for the wonderful conversation, the beautiful little piece of wisdom that you shared with us, and most of all for your beaming smile. I don't know if anybody's told you this, but you have a a smile that can light up the room. Oh, I'm not wow. even saying this because I'm a student. <laughs> I I don't. <laughs> I'm saying this on behalf of Fod. <laughs> uh but yes thank you fod any last thoughts before we set off no um just you know um if there's anything you want to promote or you know where can people find you any final thoughts you want to say dr hadara uh where can people find me that's that's the the most difficult question uh no no final thoughts just uh if if you can find me i i love to chat i love to listen and uh, for for all my students out there, uh, I hope that I can uh, that I can put put these words into action. So uh, that's all. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. Thank you for listening. Think you got it? Nah, we're on the next iteration.